0: A ten a penny Could
1: I have ten radio stations please? That'll be a penny lad Thank you
0: There is one radio station There can be only one There can be only one There can be only one That stands out from the crowd I want that one Alright What is this thing?
2: It's River
3: Radio There can be only
0: one One that's made entirely out of syrup <laughs>
3: Good evening and welcome to Politically Correct on River Radio. With me Wisdom DeCosta, your host for the next hour, and also a guest presenter today Rani Singh from The Missing Question. We've got two special guests: Gareth We've got Gareth Bacon, MP for Orbington, and James Lambert, MP for, S- for Bracknell. Sorry, James Sunderland. I'm thinking about the football player. You know, the trouble was that it's, I, I blame Gareth for this because he's a Manchester United fan. He put me off my track there. So, welcome to the show. Today we're going to be looking at um, some of the key issues that are coming up in relation to thinking and how this might develop policy over the next few years. And I'm happy to say I'm joined by uh, two of the new cohort you're both fairly new in terms of Parliament, who've come in and are bringing in some great ideas in terms of thinking, which you may or may not agree with. By the way, I have to say there are other versions of of, of thought available. But I'm really excited to have them on the show because um, the the key aspect of this show is obviously to inform you listeners and to empower you so you know you can take action, you can be active citizens and take a part in the debate, which will then lead to future policy. So welcome, um, Gareth, MP for Orpington. And James Sunderland, I'm so sorry for calling you James Lambert, but um, MP for Bracknell. I'm sorry. I'm. Not... Hello, you're both live now. Hello, wisdom. Can you hear us? Okay, I can indeed. Yes. Thank you for having us on. And thank you very much for for joining the show. I mean, Gareth, you were born in Hong Kong. You're very much a Kent boy. You went to school in Sidcup. You went to University mm. of Kent, and then joined Martin Ward Anderson became a councillor at quite a young age actually you started with um, the London Assembly General Assembly and was Mm -hmm. also also represented um, Sidcup West I believe and and yeah
2: that's going back some time that so that was when I was 26 so Sidcup West Ward which later became Longlands Ward on, on Bexley Council which is next door to the borough that I I'm now a Member of Parliament in.
3: Okay. and I see a little connection here with the Johnson family, because you replaced, obviously, um, Joe Johnson as MP for Orpington. And you were appointed by um, Boris when he was um, the Mayor for London uh, to to the role of London Fire and Emergency Planning Authority.
2: Yes, I got elected to the London Assembly in 2008, very much on Boris's coattails when he became Mayor of London. And uh, he appointed me to the Fire Authority a couple of years later, and uh, in 2015 he made me chairman uh, of the Fire Authority for the final 18 months or so of his time as mayor. So I got to know him a little bit at City Hall, and you're right, um, his brother Joe uh, represented uh, Orpington, which is in what was my London Assembly constituency of Bexley and Bromley. There are six parliamentary constituencies in that. London Assembly constituency is very large. And uh, and Joe uh, was the MP there from 2010, uh, and he decided in 2019 that he wasn't going to seek re-election. Uh, and I got selected uh, as the replacement Conservative candidate, and ultimately uh, got elected to Parliament.
3: Well, congratulations! Um, you're married with a daughter. You says, yep. Woke, sorry, Wikipedia says you're a former rugby player. A former rugby player? You don't play anymore? Yeah, uh, un- unfortunately,
2: my knee got bent. 45 degrees in the wrong direction when I was in my late 20s, and it's never really recovered. So, uh, I'm an enthusiastic armchair uh, rugby follower now. But uh, amongst many sports, I'm actually quite keen on, on, on multiple sports. I'm a bit of a sportsaholic.
3: Okay, and listen, I've got to ask you on this. I'm a Reading fan, as I'm sure James Sunderland will absolutely appreciate. <laughs> Why are you a season tick holder at Manchester United?
2: Well, I. I- was for, for twelve years, but I, I stopped in twenty seventeen. Uh, primarily family collections. My uh, cousins are all Mancunians. Okay. Uh, when we moved uh, to England, when I was very small from Hong Kong, um, they saw my the eldest of my cousins uh, was a passionate United fan and started to talking to me about it. And the thing that made my mind up when I was seven years old, I watched the FA Cup final, which in those days was the only game that was ever shown live on television, and that was Manchester United against Arsenal in nineteen seventy nine. And was, was that
3: North uh, right Side Cup final?
2: Uh, well, it, it was. It was a very boring cup final for most of it because Arsenal were two 0 up for ages, and then ah, United scored the goal the past five minutes. You know, what, terribly exciting, uh, and then Arsenal went straight down the other end and scored the winning goal. And I can remember bursting into tears and deciding this was very unjust. And so from that moment onwards, I was a, a Manchester United fan.
3: That was Alan. That was another Sunderland, if I'm not mistaken. Alan Sunderland yeah. who scored. Yeah,
2: I've, I've, I've had a big downer on anything called Sunderland ever since. <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> Great, so on that note, I think we have to to go to the aforementioned mr james sunderland uh, so m p for Bracknell crowfield Finchham said Sandhurst, and working in without you're born in Runnymede, actually, which is obviously the home of the Magna Carta. you led your local lad. you led had twenty six years in the army with the Royal uh, Logistics Corps where you rose to the rank of colonel. You left the arms service in 29 and uh, became an MP for for, um, for for Bracknell. And you're also chairman and vice chair of a number of all-party parliamentary groups. Now, it says that you're married with two children and enjoy cricket and football, but I can't recall. Did you declare an interest? Was it Reading FC by any chance? <laughs> well, i a fan, um,
4: which I've kept fairly quiet until now. But I was at the Reading game on Saturday um, when they hosted Bournemouth. Okay. Um, Rather bizarre game and a rather bizarre result because Reading should have won that one. But um, but no, I like football full stop. Like Gareth, I like all sports. And I'm very happy to be out watching cricket, watching football, playing golf. Um, motorsport's my passion as well. So uh, sports in my blood too.
3: Okay. Well, I, I'm going to have to get off the football as much as I'd love to talk about football and Swifty and so forth. So you're both members of the Common Sense Group, which is, um, again, mm. I think it, it contains a number of fairly young MPs who've got some... Create clearer thinking. Uh, so, tell me about the the Common Sense Group. Who, who, why was it formed, and who were the members? Well, it was created
2: by um, Sir John Hayes, um, who's a, a vastly experienced parliamentarian of, of many years standing. Um, and I, speaking personally, I mean, I got, I got an email from John shortly after getting elected, saying that he was setting this group up, um, and would I like to join it? I think. Uh, he was probably put onto it by my predecessor, but one, uh, Joe Johnson's predecessor, John Horan, uh, who is now Lord Horam um, and is a, a member of the group. And I think the original objective of the group was uh, to make sure that the post Brexit, um, we sort government out in the right way. So initially it was looking at the immigration bill to make sure the immigration bill would deliver what people thought they were voting for, uh, both in the referendum and also in the 2019 election. But it then broadened into uh, an interest in all sorts of things, such as freedom of speech, democracy, defence of the union uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, now I think there's around about 70 parliamentarians who are members. Um, That's across both houses. It's not just MPs. Uh, But there are a large number who are new intake MPs. And unlike James and I, are what you might call red wall MPs. Um, So people like uh, Tom Hunt is on there. Ben Bradley is on there. uh, Brendan Clark Smith, um, Jonathan Gullis, people like that. Um, and it's it's quite an exciting group to be part of. Um, There's lots of energy in it, lots of ideas, uh, lots of good discussion.
3: Now, one of the things that um, Sir John says in in the preamble is that it's in defining time. We need to define the issues of our time, including nationhood, community, migration, the rule of law and public order. And I guess that's what you all have coalesced around. It's time to re-identify or um, re-badge the Britishness
2: I don't think so much rebadge as reinforce, because what you've just described there are uh, fairly staple conservative uh, areas of interest. Um, and particularly, I think, in the post-Brexit era, uh, which is when the group was formed, obviously pre-pandemic, because at that time we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic. Um, these were all about things that we can restate as a nation, as an independent nation outside the European Union. And it seemed uh, an opportune moment to start going back to first principles, really, and, and sort of rearticulating those. Uh, and I think that's really what the group's objective is.
3: Okay. Now, what? so the objective is to sort of review what the first principles are and come to a new uh, concept, if you like, an ideology or, or, or um, a driving force which would carry the nation and policy with it. What do you think mm-hmm. are some of those key points that need to be reflected in, in, in our thinking?
2: Well, it's not really um, coming up with new ideas. It's, it's, it's restating existing ones, such as the importance of uh, nation. Uh, you touched on law and order. That's important as well. Um, as we said in, in the uh, Brexit debate, you know, taking back control. Uh, but what does that mean? What does that actually look like? Because for the first time, we can have our own independent trade policy now. Um, we can control our borders in a way that we couldn't do before. Uh, we can set our own foreign, foreign policy objectives without necessarily referring uh, to another organisation. Um, so it's really about sort of contributing to that debate as we move forward as a nation post Brexit. Um, and I think that that is the, really the determination of the group, and that's where we're
3: going. So, if I could ask again, what do you think are some of the key principles that you would boil this all down to? Two or three key items that would carry the majority of the debate and influence the majority of the direction of your thinking? If it's two or
2: three things, I mean, I think the importance of maintaining the union would certainly be one of them. Um, the restatement of our, our pride in our country uh, is another, um, and this will sort of this this sort of feeds into the chapter that I wrote in the book about um, opposition to what has become fashionably known as wokeism. Um, you know, they, they need to uh, get our immigration policy in a way that suits what our country needs rather than untrammeled immigration. Uh, which is what we were starting to see really for the last two decades or so. So really, it's, it's an idea of ourselves as an outward-looking country, but an independent country that makes its own decisions.
3: So if I was to summarise what you've just said, so what you're saying is that we have to redefine the problem today and we've got to look specifically at England as UK, um as, as a specific organisation or a specific country, which needs to not so much protect its interests, but be, be aware of what its issues are and then measure out immigration, trade and other aspects, according to almost like cutting your cloth or cutting your suit to fit the cloth?
2: Not entirely. So, so as, as a member of the European Union, we were part of a common organisation that had a particular set of objectives and values. Um, but it was a very inward-looking protectionist bloc. And the United Kingdom has never really been that because uh, Great Britain has always been a seafaring nation, uh, which is why we traded all around the world. Um, and it was two world wars that really sort of brought that into uh, a more difficult position. Um, we are now um, emerging back into the world again uh, outside the European Union. Um, and I think it's quite important that we do that on our own two feet uh, and with the best interests of our nation at the heart. And I think that's really what the common sense is really sort of driving at. Okay. Uh,
3: that
2: is that sense of Britishness that has been submerged amongst a collective identity, it's never gone away. Um, But it was sort of uh, submerged amongst a a much broader common identity of of members of the European Union. So it's really us standing up on our own two feet again uh, as an independent nation.
3: What would you say to people who say, well, you know what, England has never, Britain's never really existed as a single, discreet, absolutely unchanging ethos? It, it's changed over thousands of years as we've yeah. had a series of invasions. You know, you've had the Angles, you have the Saxons, the Romans, the Normans. And so the culture and the ethos of what we are and how we, has been an amalgam of all of that. So do you think that actually the culture is still changing as we bring in, you know, we go to the Windrush generation in the 50s, the, the post war um, immigration, Are we still changing? Are we still yet to settle down to find a clear identity? Yes, I mean,
2: what you've just said there is perfectly true. For the last thousand years, um, the country has uh, evolved, adapted, changed. uh, And and certainly the Common Sense Group doesn't stand against that. That's that's not us at all. Um, What Brexit is, is about us returning to our roots as a self governing nation. Uh, governing in the interests of people that live here. It's not an anti-immigration thing because we've always had immigration here and you've touched on some of the various different people that have uh, migrated here. I mean, Boris Johnson always talks about a group of Italians who came over here 2,000 years ago and started building roads and things. And, of course, he's talking about the Roman invasion. Um, so, you know, all of these things are part of our rich history. Um, but really, the, the, the point about Brexit was us returning to a self-governing basis, So we make our own decisions and we govern for the people who live here now. Um, And, you know, it's not about turning our face against immigration and saying that uh, people can't come to the United Kingdom. Far from it. Uh, That's never been what this country is about. And it isn't what we're about either.
3: Okay. Now, when looking through your book and and the, the book has a number of different essays by different MPs, which touch on a range of issues, including education, training, immigration, policing, Um, media and a a number of other issues aside of that one of the key themes in it is the word woke and um, wokeism now I want to just be really clear and ask you to identify what you define as as woke because, um, because one of the things that you've talked about in the book is that the woke ideology as such as it is is fragmented in nature and appears to lack an end destination which is why it it is of concern to you, or one of the reasons, perhaps. Yeah. So let's be really clear, so that we're not talking from different um, terms. What, How do you define woke and wokeism, and what's the concern there for you?
2: Sure. Okay. Well, this, this is my chapter, so I'm, I'm a bit conscious I'm doing all the talking. I do, <laughs> I do, I do, I do want to hand over to my colleagues. I'm sometime. very happy to listen, trust me. <laughs>
3: Don't worry, um, James has got a whole section later on.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, I define woke in the chapter that I wrote as, as it, it's... It's very much a social media thing, but it's, it's, I broadly defined it as um, something that's broadly left wing, anti-British, anti-Western and anti-capitalist. Um, and it attacks the very tenets of what make successful Western civilization. So it goes after capitalism. It tries to rubbish the history of successful Western countries. Um, but the reason why and, and you know, these, are, these ideas have existed for some time, but they've, they've gained a lot more traction recently. And it's social media that has done that. But the thing that concerns me most about it is that it's tremendously anti-democratic. It dislikes any kind of dissent. And anybody who doesn't agree with the viewpoint being uh, pursued by particular people, they're not just disagreed with. uh, They tend to shut people down. They bully them. They intimidate them. Uh, Academics have their contracts cancelled. They are frightened to speak on certain subjects. One of the things I've done as a Member of Parliament is that I sat on the um, Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill Committee, which is where uh, when a bill has had its second reading in the House, it then goes to committee and you go through it line by line. And part of the process is you get external witnesses to come in. And we had a, a long line of academics who came in and they talked about the chilling effect there has been in higher education, where academics can't express certain opinions for fear of what will come their way if they do. And one of those witnesses was a woman called Professor Kathleen Stock, who's at the University of Sussex. And in recent weeks, we have seen precisely what she was describing, uh, where she's basically being bullied out of her job for having a particular viewpoint, which people are perfectly free to disagree with. That's fine. But what you can't do is start cancelling people and shutting people down. That isn't fine. So, people of a woke perspective are perfectly entitled to their view, and that's fine. Um, I'm perfectly happy to debate their views with them, but they wouldn't debate with me because they will think, well, he's not one of us, so therefore we need to cancel him and shut him down. And that is tremendously against the grain of the democratic traditions of this country. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's such a dangerous thing.
3: So, it sounds to me like you're talking about the extreme end of this, of, the, of um, how should I put it, views being presented, where I would say that in, in the middle point you want to discuss issues and, and there are many people who want to talk about Black Lives Matter, but not from the perspective that they're saying that everything we're doing is rubbish and white is rubbish, not at all, but really from the point of view, if you like, we um for example, we had some Native Americans and First Nations on and for, for hundreds of years the British and the Catholic Church have been involved in abusing children and sending them to to schools in the First Nations. So all they wanted to do was have their story heard, especially as as more bodies were discovered in the grounds of some of these um, institutional schools. So they're not saying um, American wrong, white wrong. What they are saying is that, listen, you've done something wrong here. Please honestly own up to it so we can then ourselves emotionally and culturally move on. So you're not against actually people raising their voices because that is democratic but you are against people who would say who take a polemic view perhaps who would um uh, just throw a brick bat at you just because you're you
2: i i'm what i what i, I first and foremost democracy really matters so people have viewpoints is is perfectly fine and uh, democratic debate is perfectly fine as well and and it always has been and there, there's no change in any of that <laughs> What I don't like is a, a warping of uh, historical facts and things being wrenched out of context and judged through a 21st century mindset. The obvious example uh, that uh, those of White persuasion talk about a lot, and this has only happened in the last sort of four or five years, is that they'll start talking about slavery uh, in the British Empire. And slavery is an absolute obscenity. Uh, I don't think anybody would sit here and, and honestly defend slavery. Every civilization uh, since the dawn of time has had slavery in it. Uh, fortunately, on, certainly on a, a large industrial scale, it's been more or less stamped out. There are pockets of uh, what we call modern slavery now, which we're calling, uh, and our criminal offences. Uh, and it's fine to acknowledge that there was slavery uh, in the British Empire uh, at some points in the British Empire. But what is never focused on when people start talking about this is that it was the British Empire that stamped it out. Um, the British Empire, which at the time that this parliament passed the act making slavery illegal and emancipating emancipating slaves, um, Britain was a great imperial power. It it controlled 25% of the world. So Great Britain saying actually no more slavery was a really big deal at that time. And it was the Royal Navy, which was the preeminent military force at that time, then spent the next six decades uh, stamping out slavery. When Napoleon Bonaparte escaped from Elba, in 2015, at the, beginning, sorry, no, sorry, 2015 18, 15, at the beginning of the 100 days, one of the first pronouncements he made once he had resumed his throne was that the French Empire would now be withdrawing from all Atlantic slavery. And the reason that he did that is because he was trying to carry favour with Great Britain in order to avoid another war. It didn't work in his case. Uh, but nevertheless, it shows just how important the issue of stamping out slavery was to the British Empire way back two centuries ago. Okay. But none of this ever mentioned,
3: ever, yeah. when people I mean, and I understand that sometimes there are certain voices who won't mention it, but you are absolutely for debate and discussion and really bringing a balance to to the historical narrative and more importantly, helping people move on together.
2: Yes, and that's the point about the wake ideology. It, it, it deliberately seeks to be divisive. It doesn't attempt to bring people together. It takes an assumption that if you are white and male, then you are an oppressor twice over, automatically. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up in quite a humble background. There are people... Uh, who grew up in much more humble backgrounds than I did. Um, and the idea that somehow I was privileged in that up- upbringing is is something I can't really reconcile. Uh, one of my colleagues here, a, a very nice chap, Bim Afalami, um, who is a black Conservative MP, was educated at Eton. Uh, and so the idea that in some way I'm more privileged than Bim Afalami really doesn't stand scrutiny. Um, and more to the point, separating people into different characteristics like that doesn't pull people together, it pushes them apart. And when you push people apart, you make people resentful and you create create more friction, more hostility, uh, and ultimately you damage society. And I think that that is a, a very real danger with some of the woke ideas that are being pushed around at the moment. And I really don't think that uh, that's the way
3: forward. Do you think it's helpful to use an expression like woke? Because um, you talk about the woke ideology mm-hmm. such as it is, and apologies for, for, for laboring on this, because uh, we will get onto some other issues, but I think what you're thinking and saying is actually really important for people to understand the implications of. So you, you write that the woke ideology such as it is, is fragmented in nature and appears to lack an end of destination. Now, I completely agree with you that anything that lacks an end of destination is just disruptive for for no particular reason. Is it an ideology if it's fragmented? Where it has no cohesive, no sense, really, I mean, no nexus?
2: Not really. I mean, as I acknowledge, the reason I use the word "wake" is because that's a commonly used term, um, and it's a bit of a catch-all term for sort of, as I say, a range of fairly fragmented, fragmented views and, and approaches to things. Um, it, it's not an ideology in a common sense, and I think I said elsewhere in the paper that it's more akin to. Uh, anarchism, really, and that it, it wants to overthrow the existing state of things, but doesn't really have a very clear and coherent idea about what it wants to replace it with. Um, so anarchy is really when everyone's just doing their own thing, and there's and that's a very dangerous... In some ways, it's the ultimate freedom, but then that means the ultimate freedom to do whatever you want, which, of course, can be um, you know, murder, stealing, and all sorts of things. Uh, I'm not saying anybody's of a woke mindset wants to go around killing everyone and stealing their stuff, but what I am saying is that it, it's really a recipe for chaos. There, there is no particular end destination other than simply overthrowing what exists at the moment. So that's an important uh,
3: thing to watch out for in any discussion what's the end point? Indeed.
2: And there doesn't appear to be one. Okay. Uh, opposition for the sake of opposition. And some of the grievance, uh, I think, is uh, possibly has um, legitimate roots, but a lot of the disagreement doesn't have any basis at all. It's just disagreeing for the sake of it. Okay, uh, and it's inventing uh, some kind of persecution complex. It's inventing a, a grievance. Um, and it's pushing it relentlessly and making people that have done absolutely no wrong whatsoever feel guilty, feel oppressed, feel frightened. And I don't think that's a
3: We're going to take a quick break now. We're going to play Jerusalem by Catherine Jenkins for for Gareth. And don't worry, Gareth, you're pretty much off the hook now. (laughs) Next, it's over to to Mr. Sunderland to to, um, carry the flag for media reform. And listen, stay with us because we are going to be talking about media reform. And we're not talking just about the BBC or ITV, but we're also talking about social media, internet giants, and many other aspects which underlie freedom of speech and communication. So here's Catherine Jenkins with Jerusalem. And to the Catherine Jenkins um, singing Jerusalem, a fantastic song, and being played Tonight there. I'm Whoops, that's not going to. Um, <laughs> Freddie's, t- <laughs> Freddie's getting carried away there. <laughs> I think well, uh, clearly. Like ins- Freddie was
2: having a good time.
3: <laughs> he was having a great time, and hopefully, um, James is going to be having a great time in a moment. So, Easton, welcome back to River Radio and Politically Correct. We're talking to the two of the members of the Common Sense Group. That's MP. Gareth Bacon, MP for Orpington, and James Sunderland, MP for Bracknell, talking about a number of issues, including especially some policies and proposals, which are driven by the concept of wokeism and trying to redefine our national identity. So if you're listening to us and you have missed the first part of the show, where were you? But you can listen again, going to river.radio, or you can go to Apple, Deezer, Google, Spotify to get the podcast. Gentlemen, welcome back again. Thank you very much, Gareth. I worked very hard there, but I appreciate um, I appreciate your, um, your 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 patience
2: there. Oh no trouble at all. It's fine. I enjoyed
3: it. Great. Okay, so. We, we talked about the range of different issues, with that these, this thinking and this um, sort of ideology is going to affect and how you want to sort of change a number of issues. Well, we, we touched on the range. There's issues on education. I believe that Joy Morrissey talks about um, national training in terms of um, apprenticeships. There's also talks about policing and national identity and immigration. We're going to move on to the chapter that, um, James, that you've written, which is in relation to reform of the media. So, what is the problem you're trying to fix there, James?
4: Well, there's many problems. Um, I just want to sort of, first of all, just back up what Gareth has said. Um, I've just sat here very quietly for the last 15 minutes listening to him. He's a tour de force. Um, He knows what he's talking about, and he's a driving influence in the Common Sense Group. But the point I want to make to you, Wisdom, is that the Common Sense Group means different things to different people. Um, And the reason I joined was because I believe it to be a framework for issues that aren't necessarily reflected in a manifesto. So these are issues that we don't necessarily think about when we're going to the dispatch box and uh, sort of the, the polling booth and, and voting. Um, my point, therefore, is that this is about culture. It's about our history. It's about institutions. It's about serving the crown. It's about being proud of our past. It's about not being apologetic about our past. It's about embracing what we are. It's about Britishness. Um And it's about all of those issues that people really want to talk about, but feel in some way cancelled from doing so. Um, So I just want to say that Gareth is um, absolutely right what he's said so far. Um, My view of the CSG is much more guided by my service in terms of 27 years in the Army. It's much more about what we are as a nation. It's what we need to be proud about. It's about our sovereignty. And it's about how we go forward um, post-Brexit. So I think it's very much a blank canvas, and I'm very pleased to be involved with it.
3: Do you think so? I have to pick up on one point there. I mean, you talk about um, some of the discussions from um, people who are, you know, woke, so to speak, as referring to the history and the past. And that's sort of what you're saying there as well. You also want to sort of look at the history, and the history is important to you as well. How would you answer people to say, well, actually, you're saying the same thing, but just from different points of view?
4: Well, I think it's, you know, it depends on how you view it. Um, I mean, I, I spent a long time in the army. Um, I've said all over the world, and I've seen firsthand the importance that's attached to Britishness all over the world. Um, and our history is not to be cancelled. You can't go around ripping down statues because you don't like them. You can't go around changing the name of colleges, changing street names because you don't like them. Our history is our history. It's what it is, and I think we need to be proud of it as well as learn from it. Um, But I'm afraid I'm not a fan at all of cancelling our history or rewriting it to suit the agenda of certain individuals.
3: You talked about moving forward, and I think we're all agreed on that. We want to move forward. We're all in the same boat together—the climate change boat, whether you like it or not. So, what are the best aspects of history and of the ideology that you want to take forward then?
4: Well, this is all about uh, our freedoms. Um, I believe the UK to be a bastion of democracy. Our legal system is revered um, the world over. Our education system is very good. Um, our principles of voting a democracy are free speech. Um, these are the very things that define us as a nation. Uh, and I'm afraid that um, if you don't like the crown, if you don't like our flag, if you don't like the union, if you don't like our country, go and live elsewhere. Um, and I'm pretty blunt when it comes to this, because I come across people all of the time who are embarrassed by what we are, who don't like being British, who don't like our country. Well, I'm really sorry, but our country doesn't need people like you. Um, I think we need to learn from history and have a better future because of it. But we're not going to rewrite it because people don't like it.
3: I'm sure there'll be lots of comments about that. So you can email me wisdom at radio, and we'll have a follow up to this. What can we move on for? Uh, what's the best things that we can move the areas that you want to develop into, which will add strength, add value, add a real dynamism and and, um, glory, if you like, to to great Britain?
4: Well, well, I think the first thing is, and I really want to answer your question, Wisdom, because you asked a very fair question of me. Um, In terms of the chapter that that I wrote um, on on media freedoms, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. Um, I think we need to make sure that our national broadcaster, the BBC, um, of which I'm very proud, needs to be absolutely impartial. It needs to be unbiased, it needs to be objective all of the time. Um, You know, it can't be a hidden uh, ideological threat to what we are as a nation. Um, And I'm afraid that there should be no increase in the licence fee, in my view, unless the BBC can demonstrate that it is being impartial. I see far too much political bias in our newsfeeds. You know, I don't like these subliminal messages that we see all of the time that it's okay to be woke. Well, that's fine. But, but that's minority view, in my view. Uh, I think the BBC needs to be much more reflective of the majority of people in the UK that are proud of the history, are proud of the flag, are proud of our institutions. Um, and I think fanning, fanning the flames of wokeism is not what our national broadcaster, that the taxpayer pays for, should be doing. So that's one angle. I'm also very clear.
3: Sorry, can I just come back to one of the things you said? You said you want to, them to be impartial but unbiased, but yet one of your proposals is to end the need for impartiality. How do you reconcile those two?
4: I'm sorry, I didn't catch that with uh, you,
3: you said that you, the BBC and other, organ- well, certainly the BBC should be unbiased and impartial, yet one of your um, proposals is to end the need for impartiality. How, how does that work?
4: I'm not sure what you mean by the end, the need for
3: impartiality.
4: Well, is, I mean, I'm pretty clear that we have to be
3: impartial. Isn't that number two in your in your book, in your essay? It says break up the BBC, end the need for impartiality, treat social media number three as publishers and make them pay. That's one of your proposals.
4: Well, I, I think at the end of the day, as long as the BBC does demonstrate that impartiality... I've got no issue with it at all. But my, my view was about defunding the BBC if it continues to to propagate this wokest left-wing agenda, uh, which is obvious to all those that watch the TV. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, we, 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 we lost our way um, in this particular debate. Uh, and, and I think that what's obvious to me is that it's the individual agenda of newscasters and journalists that's shining through. So um, how,
3: how would you embed in gender impartiality in the BBC. But what sort of what would you do there? How would you make that happen?
4: Well, I mean, I have to be honest with you, I'd welcome ideas on that as well. I mean, I I, I think that um, it's very easy to identify the problem without necessarily thinking of a good solution. But but I happen to think that it's a dialogue that we need to have uh, between the BBC and the government. We've got a new um, Secretary of State, DCMS Nadine Doris, who's stated attention to reform the BBC as as we need to. Um, I, I just see far too much left-wing propaganda coming in through our media channels. And I have to say, I tend to switch off now. I mean, I, I, I regrettably watch a lot more Sky than I did. I watch ITV a bit more than I did. Um, and every time you turn the TV on, there appears to be a politically motivated program which we're forced to watch, um, hence why I switch off.
3: Okay. Now, this is a genuine question from one of our listeners, which had just come in, which um, sort of was trying to address that point that you said you want to end the need for impartiality. And again, I'll just quote from, from the essay that you wrote. So the, this is his question. So the, the USA's approach to journalism has, has, got, has removed media impartiality and has created a bigger partisan divide in their society, which is irreversible and only benefits the media owners who support conservative values, for example, Fox News. In the US, they have effectively don't well. Do they have anyone to regulate the media? It doesn't look like it. So, who would regulate the media in the UK? Would it still be the Press Commission?
2: I'm going to get Gareth to come in here because he's got some pretty strong views on himself. Well, it would be Ofcom as it is at the moment. But um, I mean, your your listener is right. I think to point at the USA about where this can go wrong because you, you get completely polarised views, you get polarised stations, so Democrats will watch a particular uh, broadcast um, station and uh, Republicans will watch the other, and never the twain shall meet, so you end up with a big divide. What we would much prefer to see, I think, uh, is the BBC as it was, because the BBC hasn't always been the way it is today. It used to be, I mean, I grew up on the BBC, I loved it, I thought it was a really uh, terrific broadcaster, Um, but in recent years it really has strayed from the true path. so uh, the BBC being required to go back to being much more impartial. And we don't, I think when we talk about bias in the BBC, we're not talking about party political bias, but we are talking about certainly uh, an ideological bias. There's a bias in the worldview which permeates most of the broadcasting. Um, So what we'd much prefer is to see the BBC returning to its roots almost, to returning to how it used to uh, perceive the world, how it used to broadcast to the nation, um, rather than what is, I think, most objective observers now feel is is, is, it's lost that. It's, It's skewed a bit. And I think the the number of people that are now tuning out is is quite remarkable, it's quite noticeable. Um, Until, relatively recently, I served on the Public Accounts Committee here in Parliament and we had the BBC in front of us. Um, And we were addressing them about, you know, they're losing license fee payers because people are just downing tools and, you know, even though they could uh, face imprisonment for not paying it, they don't like what the BBC is churning out and they're losing hundreds of thousands of, uh, of license fee payers. And, you know, what the BBC are going to do to address that. What what, what do they think the problem is? Okay. Uh, and they seem to think the problem is to chase ever younger audiences. And I don't think that that's true. I think they're losing the um, their more established viewers, uh, you know, it, who, who are finding, I think, that the BBC is not representative of the way they see their country and themselves. <laughs> uh, and off in droves, just like James has just said. And I th- so I'd much prefer, greatly prefer, the BBC to return to the much more impartial broadcaster that it used to be. But if it's not going to do that, then my personal preference would be that we remove the licence fee and the BBC can go to a subscription model and stand on its own two feet. Uh, if people want to pay to watch this, they will.
4: Wisdom, I'm going to give you three examples very quickly of what I think we're trying to talk about. I think the first thing is you've got BBC journalists who are using their private social media platforms to propagate course. course. Um, Emily make has been one example. I, I think it's not acceptable. If you are in a position of responsibility, if you're a national broadcaster, I'm afraid, keep your politics out of it. I think the second thing is this. I was watching Dad's Army a while ago and I was quite horrified that an advisory label came on with language using Dad's Army. Come on, are we honestly serious that Dad's Army is deemed to be not politically correct? Uh, quite amazing, and, and the third example is this. Um, I have made it known to a number of people at the BBC that I'd be very happy going on politics South on a Sunday morning, and I've been told repeatedly from a very, very, very good source that they wouldn't have me on because I'm heterosexual, middle class, and white. Outrageous, and I'm afraid that it goes back to this white privilege, this white guilt thing. Um, I don't feel guilty at all for being a white, heterosexual male in his early 50s. I'm very proud of that, actually. I'm very proud of what I've done in my life and in my career. And you've got a generation now of BBC viewers who are becoming increasingly marginalised by what they're seeing, and it's not acceptable.
3: So what would be the proposal then to uh, either, well, to rebase the BBC to make it more independent or certainly impartial and um, present information, and I guess from my perspective, I'd say people need news and information, they also need analysis, but they don't necessarily need opinion. How, what sort of steps would you take to move the BBC towards that approach?
4: Well, again, it's very, you know, it's much easier in principle, perhaps, than in practice to work out the mechanisms required. Um, I personally think it needs a tiger team, so it needs um, a dedicated team set up within DCMS, to look at how we might reform the BBC. I think we need to be holding BBC executives to account much more. Um, I think we've set us targets in terms of um, not allowing the licence fee to go up until certain targets have been met. Uh, I would hazard a guess that it's about quality of broadcasting. It's about quality control in terms of the programmes that we're seeing on TV at the moment. Um, Why not ask people why not ask taxpayers, why not ask licensed payers what they want from the BBC? Do a survey. Um, you know, let's, let's have a massive survey across the UK as to why people are switching off from the BBC. I'm not pathologically anti-BBC at all. As Gareth has said, I'm very proud of our national broadcaster. It is a bastion the world over. But, but you know, when people overseas say to me, what on earth is happening with the BBC? appears to have lost its way. I think the BBC needs to be much more pro-where we are right now. Its Remainer narrative was a total embarrassment, in my view. Um, You know, that shone through loud and clear. It's the liberal elite that we talked about. It's about the champagne, drinking socialists, and isn't into North. I'm afraid it has to be reflective of the UK as a whole, It has to be cognizant of the fact that we've got a large Tory majority at the moment. And it has to be a bit more sympathetic to the fact that we've got the largest Conservative government um, for many, many years with our
3: 82-seat majority. Do you think that the BBC needs to be split into two in one sense, in, in, in as much as you've got the entertainment side of it? And I think Gary Lineker, I think who people have complained about in the past for presenting political views, might fall into the entertainment side. So he's entitled to his view and to say that, whereas you've got the news side which um, is about information and not about entertainment, but about opinion forming or rather giving the people the information so they can make their own opinion. Do you think there's a case for that? I'm going to
4: hand across the really quickly, but I think if you are being paid good money, you're working for the National Broadcaster, which has you know, prided itself for decades on its impartiality. You can't have two personas to your personality. You can't be coming across in a particular way on TV with millions of viewers and then privately, um, you know, subjugating that with your social media messages. I'm afraid that if you are employed as a public broadcaster, then that standard needs to be adhered to both in your public and private life.
3: Gareth?
2: Wis- wisdom. I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I am, unfortunately for me, old enough to remember when Gary Lineker was a, a very good footballer. Um, <laughs>
3: actually, probably still better I, than I am.
2: Well, (laughs) he's better than me too, but that's not really saying a great deal. Um, No, he was terrific. And I I think he's a very good broadcaster as well. I think he he, uh, is very good on television. I think his analysis of sport is extremely good. But for most people alive in the country today, um, I think certainly anybody who is younger than 35 or so, um, Gary Lineker is a media presenter, not a footballer. Uh, a bit like Jimmy Greaves was when I was growing up. Jimmy Greaves was a legendary footballer, but not while I was, not while I was alive. Um, and Gary was that to most of the people that are now his audience. And he's been given a very big platform and a very big basis for his political views. So, and the bulk of his income comes from license payers, comes effectively from taxation. Um, and he works primarily for the BBC. I know he does stuff with BT Sport, and he's got commercials with Walker Crisps and everything else. Um, so he's a very wealthy man, but the, the bulk of his income comes directly from the British taxpayer, and he uses the platform that that gives him, not during his broadcasting, or not largely during his broadcasting, he has once or twice, but mostly on social media, to broadcast sometimes very aggressive political opinions. Um, and I don't think he should be allowed to do that, because that does a form opinion. People look up to sports people. And and sports people can uh, change uh, the focus of people's attitude. Last year, when we had Black History Month, last October, um, I spoke in the House in that debate. And I talked about uh, a lot of the black sports professionals, or sports people, that had made a big influence on me growing up. And the reason I did that is because sport often leads and society follows. People look up to sports people. And so I I talked about various Manchester United footballers and England rugby players and boxers and athletes, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing I talked about most was about Mo Farah, because Mo Farah, when he won the second gold medal, I I watched that in Hyde Park on a big screen and saw people of all walks of life, all celebrating a Somali immigrant wearing a GB vest, winning his second gold medal. And it was a unifying thing, not a a thing that pushes people apart. But going back to Gary Lineker, he, he uses the platform that he's got Primarily provided by taxpayers' money to push political views on social media. And I think that's fine if he wants to do that, but not if he wants to work for the BBC.
3: Okay. We're going to take a quick break there. So, Gary, if you're listening, I'm sure you are listening, uh, email us, wisdom at river.radio. So, we're going to play Don't Stop Me Now. Freddie's really going to come on, and this is especially for James Sutherland. So, here we go. Don't Stop Me Now.
0: Tonight, I'm going to have my say. Time I feel alive and the world I'm turning
1: inside out. I'm floating around in ecstasy, so.
0: we we'll
3: Freddie Mercury, don't stop me now. Uh, Not for Gary Lineker, although Gary, you can have this as well, (laughs) especially for James Sunderland. Now, welcome back to Politically Correct on River Radio. We're talking to the inimitable Gareth um, gareth bacon and also to james sunderland about were well, some of their essays in a book called commons Sense, and how that will affect political policy or thinking which affects political policy in the future so email your comments to wisdom at river.radio. and remember you can listen to radio river radio online using a mobile app on apple google web alexa and digital is coming soon gareth and james welcome back to the show
4: Thank you. Thank
3: you. Okay. So I want to just take the last few sort of moments of the show. I think there were a couple of other really important points that you, you've discussed, um, uh, James. One of the points was that you wanted to if I just read straight from, from your essay. Um, so it was to treat social media, social media as publishers and make them pay. What's the thinking there? What problem are you trying to solve? And what effect will that have on society?
4: But I think very briefly, we need to raise the bar um, at the moment. Social media um, serves many useful purposes. We all use it. Uh, it's a great broadcast mechanism. But it's also a cesspit. And, and the complete impunity that people have to say what they want, to issue death threats, to abuse people, to troll them, um, pretty unpleasant. We've seen lots and lots of situations of young people being bullied, We've had awful suicides well-published in the media because of it. Um, we've got MPs who have been torn apart unnecessarily. But it's not just us, it's a whole range of public figures, it's councillors, it's um, pop stars. So I'm pretty clear on this one, as I'm sure Gareth is. We need to remove the anonymity that currently exists with social media accounts. Uh, and our online safety bill, which is being promised anytime now, will do exactly that, uh, I think is the right thing to do.
3: So, how do you propose to make them pay as publishers? Is this just going to be a taxation thing, where you you imply sorry you imply some level of of profitability which they're taxed on, or are you talking about a paper um, dissemination of an of a, of, a, of an article?
4: Well, I think it's all sorts of things. When I, I think the word pay has many connotations, but but it's about libel. It's about being held to account for the content that they allow. Their platforms to uh, carry. I, I think it's about taxing them properly. It's about offshore accounts. It's making sure that they become much more responsible um, for the content. It's about tightening the law. Um, it, it's it's about making sure also that the licenses they might be granted are conditional against certain targets being met. I mean, I think at the moment they are they are almost beyond reproach. They're almost beyond accountability. And I think that the law needs to be tightened so that we hold them much more to account in many ways.
3: So you're saying a greater level of regulation, regulation to make sure their content is acceptable and that they are licensing, which are ties with that regulation. And if you say if they breach those 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 conditions, then effectively Facebook could be taken off air in the UK. Is that what you're proposing? I think
4: so. Um, I, I think that clearly the criteria needs to be worked through. It's not a five-minute job to do that. But uh, if they're not operating successfully, if they're allowing illegal content, defamatory content, abusive content, death threats, the list goes on to be um, used on their platforms, they need to be shut down um, or fined. I suspect that if uh, legislation is passed in the House which which fines them heavily for breaches of what that social contract should be, they'll quickly tighten up the house to the point where they're not losing money. Um, So I'm pretty clear that um, there's a social responsibility attached to this that at the moment is not being adhered to and it's not being respected. Uh, And people, you know, when they're at home, sat on their computer screens, when they're being bullied, when they're doing awful things for themselves, self-harming, the list goes on, because of what they're reading and allowing themselves to be reading on social media. It's got to stop. Uh, And and I think that the online safety bill
3: covers many, many evils. So how quickly can we move to regulation of social media, do you think?
4: Well, I think that what's become quite clear is that, uh, and it's unrelated, but the David Ames murder, I think, has accelerated lots of thought on this. Of course, we can't conflate the physical threat from from terrorism um, with the more virtual online threats that we're seeing. But abusive behaviour in all of its forms, needs to be stopped. And I'm afraid that uh, I want to see a UK which is much safer for young people. I want to see an online space which is much safer for young people and old people. I want to make sure that these people who post defamatory nonsense on social media are held to account. And as soon as the first prosecutions go through, once they lose their anonymity, I'm pretty sure that we'll clean up the entire internet.
3: There's the old expression, just follow the money. So what sort of opposition are you going to expect when you follow the money and the billions of income that's generated by Facebook?
1: Well,
4: the funny thing is, and this is a real surprise perhaps to many listeners, that the Tories have got a large majority. If we can't do it now with an 80 seat majority, when can we do it? So ultimately, I think what the government decides to do here will probably be carried through the House. Uh, I think people will vote for it. What would be great as well is if the opposition sees the merits in this particular legislation and getting behind it as well. How fantastic would it be for our online safety bill to get the support of all corners of the House? So I think it's a fairly easy thing to do. I think it's in everybody's interest to do it. Um, and, and again, you know, what's not to like?
3: Do you think that our American friends might complain?
4: Possibly, but the Americans don't set law in this country, and I'm afraid that the British ele- Demand an awful lot more British politics and what we think is right in our space, we'll legislate
3: for, um, and no doubt the Americans may even follow suit. Okay. Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> I'm not sure that our American friends will be too too keen on this, especially in terms of um, restraint of trade and so forth and things like that. But listen, it's a great idea. Do you think there's anything we can learn from the Australian model where well, they did try and um, in, in put some charges on Facebook?
4: Well, I think that um, when we're doing this bit of work, we'll look at all feeds. So one of the beauties of being a global country is the fact that we've got friends all over the world. We can follow their example, follow their lead. We can extract what's good about legislation elsewhere. We can also ignore what's not good about legislation elsewhere. So no doubt at all, the Australian model will be of use to us.
3: Okay. Now, final question was um, in relation to um, ensuring quality and transparency. So what are your thoughts about that in terms of social media and broadcasting? One of your last proposal was, I believe one of the points was a quality control mark or even a a transparency mark for um, broadcasters so we know exactly who the shareholders are and what their views are. Uh, Can you expand on those points?
4: I mean, I can very briefly. I mean, Ofcom has a role here. I I think fake news is a factor here. We need to make sure that um, outlets that that openly and obviously publish fake news need to be held to account. Um, But once again... It's a big list of criteria that DCMS needs to put together. Um, It needs to be circulated around the house. It needs to be subject to conversation. Sorry, DCMS,
3: can you tell tell the listeners again who DCMS are?
4: DCMS is the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. So this is the organisation within government, the department within government that's responsible for this very issue. Um, So broadcasting standards, responsible for online safety, responsible for culture, um, for media and, of course, sport. Um, okay. So very much under Nadine Doris' uh, bailiwick.
3: OK. My, my special thanks today to um, Gareth Bacon and to James Sundan. I really hope we'll have both of you on on the show in the future to discuss some of these sort of thinking points. Gentlemen, what would you, noise, noise? what um, message would you like to leave listeners with? What do you think they should be doing now?
2: Uh, I think uh, practising democracy, respecting each other, Uh, respecting freedom of speech and being proud of their country.
3: Okay, James?
4: I think the word that springs to mind is pragmatism. We need to be proud of who we are, proud of our history, proud of our country, proud of our flag, proud of our monarchy, and proud to be British. I've said all over the world there's some pretty nasty places out there, and I can tell you for a fact the UK is not one of them. What we have here is fabulous. The freedoms, democracies that we have, the rights as individuals, People need to stop knocking the UK and
2: stop being proud of it.
3: Okay. Now, how can people get in touch with you and how can they find out more?
2: Well, they can read the book. If if, if they Google Common Sense Group, the first hit you get is the is the book. Um, the Common Sense Group doesn't have a website yet, although one is planned. But I um, you can contact James or I uh, as with any other MP just by writing to us um, here at Parliament.
3: Great. Um, Gareth Bacon, James Sundland, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show.
2: My pleasure, Weson Nice talk to you thanks
3: there we go that was um gareth bacon mp for orpington and james sundland mp for for bracknell who were talking about some of the issues that arise from the concept of wokeism people trying to cancel culture and not really being willing to accept what others say so they seem to be calling for debate which is always good also for changes which you, you may or may not agree with but it's always worth talking about we're going to close now with a track by Lisa Stanfield and Colcutt, it's called People on Hold. I'll be back in a few minutes just to let you know what comes next. Enjoy this. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's all the time we had for in terms of Lisa Stanford and Coldcut. Now, remember, join us again next week when we'll be talking about cryptocurrency and how you can be empowered through cryptocurrency. I'll leave you this final thought. Remember, if you don't, who will? Across the Thames Valley. One
1: more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is...